All right, welcome back to Best Hour of Their Day. We have another very special guest. We have Steve Alardi, PhD, Dr. Steve from the University of Kansas. And we're going to talk all about the benefits of exercise when it comes to depression. And more than that, I'm going to let you talk a little bit about that, Steve, to kick it off because I don't know that I'll do it justice. So, can you give yourself a little 30 second elevator pitch of who you are for the listeners out there? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Jason. So I, I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm a professor of clinical psychology, University of Kansas. I trained at Duke University where I, I spent five years, got my PhD. And most of my focus for my whole career has been clinical depression. And for the first probably 10 years or so of my career, I was really like a deep lab science, bench science, neuroscience guy, publishing articles that probably 100 people in the entire world might read or care about. And I was happy as a clam. But um, over time, I got increasingly frustrated with the fact that we have an epidemic of depressive illness in our current regimen of treatments, whether they be medication or traditional talk therapy. That regimen is not getting the job done. The, the epidemic is getting worse and worse. And I had an epiphany that much of that epidemic is driven by the way we live. And in particular, the fact that we were just never designed for the sedentary, socially isolated, sleep deprived, fast food laden, indoor, just frenzied pace of 21st century life. And it's taking a tremendous toll on our bodies and brains and our minds. And so I switched gears and began researching a lifestyle-based approach to treating depression and have, have witnessed some, some really remarkable results. So that's who I am. That's what I do. Well, I appreciate that. And yeah, I agree with you, Steve. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the, the trend or there's some sort of upswing or hockey stick, if you will, of people being diagnosed with depression. Do you think it's because of the way we're living this day and age, or was it just not being diagnosed often enough, you know, back in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. It's, it's really that I think the first question any, any thoughtful person should have come to mind when they hear that the rate of depressive illness has been skyrocketing. Is it just, basically, if I can paraphrase, is it just an artifact or awareness now or the way in which we're thinking about it? And the answer is no. Uh, how do we know? Well, because we're, we're using exactly the same methodology to, it's basically, and I don't want to go too deep into the weeds, but it's an epidemiological approach where researchers going back for many, many decades have canvassed, they've done random samples of the population, kind of like pollsters would do, except a much bigger sample, thousands and thousands of Americans across a, a wide swath, a big cross-section of the country, and we're not asking people, hey, have you ever had depression? Hey, have you ever been diagnosed? Hey, have you ever been treated? We're asking them very specific questions about symptoms um, and then using the diagnostic formulas that we have. Um, some listeners probably have heard of, of the DSM, which is our diagnostic handbook, kind of a, a Bible, as it were, for how to make diagnoses. And what I can say is applying exactly the same algorithm or formula to exactly the same answers to the same questions, what we're seeing is a huge uptick in the rate of depressive illness. And it tracks with disability, 
claims that we're seeing, it tracks with um, a large spike, sadly and tragically, a large spike in suicide, and particularly suicide uh, rates, both um, completed suicide, fatal suicide, and attempts among young people. They've been skyrocketing since really about the last 25 years or so. Well, yeah, and as a, you know, I have a master's in psychology, so I'm quite familiar with the DSM. I have the DSM-4. Is that still what they're on, or has it progressed to the 5 now? Uh, believe it or not, we're on the 5. Uh, in, in fact, um, 2013 was when the 5 came out, and, and a new edition appears roughly, I'd say, about every 15 to 18 years. So if we uh, sit tight for another decade or so, we'll see another one. So they, they, what? The, the criteria don't change that much from one edition to the next. And when it comes to depression, they're almost identical. Well, that's what I was going to ask. You know, people listening, let's, let's kind of establish what we're referring to. Can you give us, what are the major symptoms? What should people be looking out for, whether it's within themselves, family, friends, when, when it comes to diagnosing depression? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really glad you, you brought that up because there's so much tragic misunderstanding around the word depression. You know, when a lot of people hear that word, um, you know, maybe in just in casual conversation, they'll hear somebody say, oh, I'm really depressed today. And what that often means just in everyday conversation is that, you know, the person's feeling down, they're feeling sad. Uh, maybe something upsetting happened, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. They've had a setback, a disappointment, a loss, a failure. Um, and that's, by the way, um, a normal part of the human condition. We're, we're hardwired to feel sad when something hasn't gone our way. And it, it's not typically something that is, is of any clinical concern as long as it resolves in a, as it typically does in a short period of time. But here's the problem. We in the clinical community use the word depression um, the same exact word. We use it as a shorthand for a really debilitating illness. In, in the DSM parlance, we, it's called major depressive disorder. I prefer depressive illness because I think it captures much better the fact that now we're talking about this debilitating condition that often robs people of their ability to, to think clearly. It robs them of their energy. It robs them of their focus. It robs them of their ability to love and work and play and in many instances, probably the majority, it actually robs people of their very will to go on living. Um, depressive illness lights up the brain's pain circuitry. So the person who suffers from it is actually in a state of agony. Um, it's partly emotional, and in many cases, it's also physical because the brain's emotional pain circuitry sits right next door to the physical pain circuit. So they'll talk about this sort of unclear, vague sense of physical distress. And um, many people, because of the negative thinking that accompanies the negative mood, they'll begin to get hopeless. They'll begin to feel like there's no possible escape. And many will begin looking at death as a potential means of escape. Uh, and, and of course, we know all too tragically because depressive illness is completely treatable um, in the majority of cases. But uh, th that's the distinction. When we in the business talk about depression, we're not talking about just everyday run-of-the-mill sadness. Well, and I want to really relate this to fitness and box owners, coaches, and even some athletes, you know, members of boxes, because, you know, what percentage of America will, will eventually be impacted by this? Yeah, well, 
Again, you're asking such great questions. The, the, the latest epidemiological evidence we have suggests that at least 30% of Americans at some point in their lives will be hit by depressive illness. And what this means is depressive illness is now the single leading cause of disability for all Americans. It, it causes more disability, more days lost, more years lost than the heart disease, cancer, anything else. It, it, it has now truly become an epidemic. And by the way, that's despite a 400% increase in antidepressant medication use just since 1990. In other words, one out of every eight Americans is currently taking an antidepressant med every day, and it has not moved the needle one bit in terms of stemming the tide of this epidemic. Well, and when you say 30% of Americans, what I really hear is 100% will at some point be impacted in their lives because whether they deal with depression or not, they're going to have a friend or family member or a member of their box or you know, one of their athletes be dealing with this. So it's uh, important, uh, that, it's no, important that we know how to deal with it from that perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, I mean, one of the, I guess, if I can, can put a silver lining on this, uh, we know that regular physical activity and being a part of a community, such as a CrossFit community, both of those things are enormously protective. Not completely, not 100%. I don't want to give any, any sort of false assurances. But what I can tell you with absolute certainty is that the rate of clinical depression among people who participate in CrossFit is going to be lower than that in the population, and, and not just slightly lower, but a lot lower. So when you say that, is that CrossFit specific or is that all activity? Yeah, no, it's not, it's not specific, um, although I'll tell you a couple things that I love about CrossFit that I do think maybe set it apart a little bit. But no, what, the research that I'm referring to primarily is that that, that looks specifically at the antidepressant impact of regular physical activity. I mean, as I mentioned or sort of alluded to a little bit earlier, our bodies are not designed to be sedentary. And, you know, there's, there's a kind of a, a pithy little saying making the rounds, you may have heard of it, sitting is the new smoking. And, you know, the more we learn about what our bodies are designed to be doing, the more we learn that they're, I mean, they're really not designed to be sitting around. And our ancestors, if we look all the way back to the Paleolithic, to the Pleistocene, our ancestors, judging from contemporary Aboriginal groups who are living pretty similar lives, um, they were moving most of the day and engaged in pretty vigorous activity, probably up to four hours a day, um, at least at, at moderate intensity. And so what we're learning is that when we get up and move, and particularly when we're getting close to the aerobic range of activity, it has profound antidepressant impact on the brain. It, it changes brain function. And this is going to really surprise a lot of people, but I'm just going to say it. So there's my spoiler. It changes the brain more dramatically in more different ways than any current medication that we could give someone. So if we could take the brain changing effects of physical activity, of exercise, and put them in a pill, it would become the most effective pill that we could possibly give someone with depression. Well, I've said that often, you know, getting up at 5 a.m. to hit the 5.30 or 6 a.m. class is a terrible feeling when that alarm goes off, but you feel great after And I said, if they can just bottle up how I'll feel after, 
it'd be easier for me to wake up in the morning. And I'm sure it's a similar effect when it comes to depression. You know, if we, we have to be able to get these people to the gym. So Absolutely. let's, let's start there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful point. And, you know, it's something in, in our research here at the uh, University of Kansas, one of the very first things we found, okay, so we've got a, a, a lifestyle-based treatment program. The, the centerpiece of it is getting people moving. Um, and by the way, it's not at high doses. It's much, much less, it turns out, than um, to, to have a clinically significant effect than you get at CrossFit. So um, this, again, may surprise some people, but, but the best research suggests that you start to see an antidepressant effect with brisk walking for a half hour in the aerobic zone three times a week. So basically 90 minutes of aerobic walking three times a week has been tested head to head against Zoloft, against an antidepressant medication um, in a couple different trials and found to be equally effective in the short term, more effective in the long term. Um, and again, that's a really low dose. But the question is, how do you get people to do it? And so when we started piloting that, what we found was a lot of patients, when we just laid that out for them and said, here's the goal, here's how you can do it, um, let's structure it, and um, you know, let's meet in a week and we'll talk about it. What we found was only about half of our depressed patients were able to put that into practice on their own. And well, uh, it, it makes me think of two things. It's one, you know, it's, it's that first step. Right. It's how do we get them to take that first step and actually feel it. But but secondly, I think you're probably considered a much more progressive doctor. You know, how do we get doctors to not prescribe drugs where they're probably making money on and saying, hey, we've got this better alternative. It's actually free and it's going to make you feel even better. Yeah. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing is when our research started to get some traction and, and publicity locally. And, you know, we got a nice feature story on the front page of the, the Lawrence Journal World, which is our local uh, paper in a community of about 100,000. A lot of the doctors in town started writing out on a sheet of paper a list of lifestyle changes, including this, you know, regular brisk walking. And they would hand it to their patients and say, here, this will help you. Um, and here's the problem. People with clinical depression, because of the illness, they lose a lot of their energy and they lose a lot of their initiative. There's, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on the neuroscience, but basically the circuits in our brain that allow us to translate our intention into action. Think of it as sort of the executive function of like being able to pull the trigger on something we want to do. Those circuits go offline when people are clinically depressed. They reside in the left frontal cortex. And so what we ended up basically having to say to our patients is, look, we want to set you up for success. We're not just going to hand you a list of things, including, um, you know, exercising and tell you, hey, good luck with that. You know, put that into practice as best you can. Instead, we're going to partner with you. We're going to give you that little spark of initiative. Um, so what did we do? Well, we got a personal trainer for every single one of our patients after we had had such poor results in our pilot group on adherence to exercise. So it's like, okay, well, Mrs. Jones, we want to introduce you to Biff. He's going to be your personal trainer. Um, he's going to meet with you now. You're going to put three blocks of time in your schedule for the week ahead. And then he's going to give you, if it's okay with you, give you a little prompt, a little tickler, a half hour in advance. And what we found, it was really remarkable. 
was most of our depressed patients that would tell us, look, I was sitting there, I was dreading the workout. Kind of like you were talking about, you know, waking up at 5.30 in the morning. It's like, oh, God, I got to go do this thing. Um, and they would be dreading it, but they would get the little reminder, and that would be enough to get them up off the couch, get their shoes on, get them out the door. And then once they started moving, once they started actually getting involved in it, they're like, oh, why was this so hard? This is, this is really helping. And so, you know, a lot of people who are uh, experts in treating depression, so, or, or just, you know, a lot of physicians who see a lot of depression in, in their routine practice, they get really cynical and they're like, okay, well, yeah, sure, exercise might help depression, but nobody who's depressed is going to be able to do it. And what I tell them in response is no. Most people with depression are not going to be able to initiate it, but if you're willing to partner with them, we can help them do it. And once we have them moving, it's going to profoundly change their life. Have you found kind of a tipping point in number of days or weeks or even months that it takes for them to realize, okay, this is what's helping me feel better? Yeah, that's that's a really wonderful question. It varies, of course, um, a little bit from person to person, but I would say just, you know, ballparking on average, probably about two months. Um, you know, there's, there's a saying, you might have even encountered it in your master's program, that um, once any activity, anything at all becomes a habit, it becomes self-reinforcing. In other words, you know, if somebody has a habit of flossing their teeth every night, well, just grabbing that piece of dental floss gives them a little dopamine spark in their brain's reward circuitry. It's like, oh, this is what we do. This is a habit. Uh, this is great. And it, and it becomes self-reinforcing. Um, there's a saying that it takes, you know, somewhere between about 10 and 15 repetitions for something to become a new habit. Unfortunately, with physical activity, it looks like it takes a little more. And um, there's, there's some evidence, at least, that for, for many people, it can take 20 to 30 repetitions before a particular workout routine becomes completely self-reinforcing. Yeah, it probably has to do with the fact that working out's a tiny bit harder than flossing your teeth. Yeah, for, for most of us, I would say, for sure. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of exertion. Um, you know, and if I could pivot back just to something we were talking about earlier, I mean, I think part of the, the genius of the CrossFit system is that by including a very strong component of social connection, social accountability, and uh, social encouragement, I think it gives people a little bit of that same spark of initiative that we've been doing in our program here. So in other words, I can imagine someone, and I've actually talked to a couple patients that were part of a CrossFit community, and that, you know, that's something they joined as, as part of their recovery. And they said that, you know, there were certainly times where they were feeling that really low ebb of, of motivation, energy, initiative, and just the thought of seeing their comrades, seeing their, you know, the members of, of their community um, there, that was enough to, to get them out of bed, to get them moving, to get them to the gym. And, um, you know, it's, it's something, I, I mean, I, I know I don't need to tell you this, but so many Americans, not only are they sedentary, but they really just crave a sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves, some sense of deep connection with other people. Um, you know, basically they're looking for their tribe. And I think, CrossFit really, really fills a, uh, an important niche there for a lot of people. Well, it's, like, it's, it's like Coach Glassman says, the magic is in the community. 
And I'm sure that be it, you know, battling depression or just looking to be healthier and fitter. I know for me, there's been plenty of times I, the last thing I want to do is work out, but just like you said, knowing my friends are going to be there, my tribe, if you will, motivates me to, you know, get off my couch or put down the computer and, and actually get to working out. Now, from the affiliate level, you know, for, for a coach or, or, or for a box owner, what are some things we need to be aware of if someone comes in and tells us they are battling, dealing with depression, but they are using exercise as a means of overcoming it? Yeah, well, um, a couple principles right away. I mean, number one, I, I think it's important um, to approach this illness with a strong sense of humility um, to, to understand it, it is really treacherous and there's no one size fits all solution in the sense that, I mean, if you look at the full array of outcomes, clinical outcomes for someone with depression, let's say, I mean, let's just take the, the standard array of treatments, right? I mean, you think of like if somebody with clinical depression goes to see a psychiatrist, what's going to happen? Well, they're probably going to be put on an antidepressant med. What's the likelihood that that med is going to help them into complete recovery over the next, let's say, three months? Um, the answer may surprise you. It's about 30% or so will experience complete recovery. About half the patients who take that med are going to get really trivial to no benefit. About half the people, the med is not going to help at all. What if they instead do traditional psychotherapy? It's going to be about the same ratio. What if they instead start exercising? It's going to be a little better. Um, depending on the level of activity and what else is happening. But, um, you know, it, that's still not going to, to lead everyone to complete remission. Um, it turns out in clinical depression, there, there are about seven to ten different interlocking neurological, physiological kinds of dysregulation. In other words, there are lots of different systems in the brain, in the body, that are malfunctioning when a person is clinically depressed. And we tug on a few of them with exercise, and that's enough to get many people into complete recovery. But there are lots of others that we may need to address as well. So that, that's why, you know, I mentioned we, we have six different elements in, in our protocol. Exercise is just one of them. Well, what else? you know, could be going on. Well, they, they, they might have a circadian rhythm dysregulation, which a lot of people get this time of the year in the winter because they're light deficient. So we might want to start using a therapeutic light box for them as well. We might need to work on their, their habits of sleep. We may need to look at their levels of inflammation, we may need to add um, anti-inflammatory uh, high dose fish oil or, or, you know, some other kind of anti-inflammatory regimen. So, you know, if I can circle back around to your question, um, I think it's really important for box owners to hold in a kind of dialectical tension the idea that on the one hand, what they're providing can have a true antidepressant effect, about as great as, as the medication for people who come in who are depressed. And yet, what that means is there are going to be people who still need more. And so, you know, they don't want to be too um, cavalier in thinking, oh, this is a replacement for seeing a trained mental health professional. Like, no, if somebody's clinically depressed, I would encourage every box owner listening to this to encourage that individual, like, yes, please keep coming, but also please consider seeing a professional to make sure that you've got a, a trained set of eyes 
on you to make sure that we're not missing anything else that we could be doing to help. Well, and a couple of the things you mentioned there, be it, you know, I think what most people have heard of as SAD, seasonal affective disorder, right? Or inflammation, sleep, those are all things that we should be talking about at the box level as well. So the, the physical activity are, is gonna benefit them, but also these other things that we should be discussing such as nutrition, sleep, et cetera. No, absolutely. Yeah. I would say that, you know, that, that's, that's a really wonderful point. And, and I, I'm just sort of sifting in my head through the major elements in our, by the way, for listeners who are interested, we, the, our protocol is called therapeutic lifestyle change or TLC. And of the six elements, the only one that really probably doesn't perfectly easily fit within the CrossFit zeitgeist is, is um, anti-rumination strategies. So basically, um, you know, one, one of the big problems we see in depression is people who are depressed really get stuck in their heads. They get, they, they get locked in a vicious cycle of negative thinking where they just can't shake these relentless negative thoughts about themselves, about others, about the future, about the world. And people with depression often spend literally hours every day caught in their own vortex of negative thinking. And, um, you know, it turns out that we can do all of these other antidepressant things for them, like exercise and light box and omega-3s and everything else. But if they're still ruminating all the time, we're not going to get them completely well. well. We'll certainly be able to reduce the severity of their symptoms, get them more functional. But um, that, that's the sort of thing that very often a good trained clinical psychologist or other mental health professional can help them learn to identify when they're ruminating and redirect, redeploy their attention elsewhere. Um, something that, you know, probably some listeners have gotten into mindfulness techniques or mindfulness meditation. And um, it's very difficult for people to pick up meditation while they're depressed. But if they've ever had that practice before, that's something that they can deploy often and successfully kind of put an end to that ruminative cascade. But, uh, and I'm thinking as a coach though what we can do is celebrate these small wins be it you know a first pull-up a pr and a lift you know just completing a workout and hopefully you know lots of small wins will lead to a better mindset long term and they can hopefully have methods and ways to improve their own mindset when they're not at the box yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great point. Hey, one other thing I would mention for the box owners and, and for any other listeners out there, and that is um, depression, unlike most other forms of mental illness, it can commonly be caused by undetected, undiagnosed physical illnesses. And, and, a, and a huge array of different physical illnesses can initially manifest as clinical depression. So for example, and some, you know, you may be familiar with, if somebody has sleep apnea, so they're waking themselves up hundreds of times every night because their airway is collapsing and they're literally um, starved for oxygen. Uh, sleep apnea very often presents initially as clinical depression. So if a person has a medical illness like that that's causing their depression and we can treat it with everything we have, um, you know, that we can get them exercising, all those things are going to be helpful, but we're not going to cure them until we actually figure out what's, what's driving it underneath it medically. So um, this is particularly useful to keep in mind when the person presents where they're otherwise like, you know, psychologically, they're in a good space, they're healthy, they're balanced. And they'll say, 
you know, I don't know what's wrong. It just came, came on out of, out of the blue. It's like nothing particular was going on in my life. I just like this thing just hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, whenever we see something like that, we really, really want to urge the individual to get a complete medical workup to rule out any of these kinds of, you know, underlying biological drivers that might be undetected. Well, I'm sure that's something we should address as well. If someone comes to your box or, you know, approaches you as a coach and says, hey, I have depression and I'm trying to deal with it, probably the first thing you should do is ask them if they've spoken to a doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and not just, you know, a lot of times people will hear that and they think, oh, you mean like a therapist. And, and what you're really saying, at least what I'm saying, and I think we both are, is, well, no, we, we want you to have a, you know, we want you to have a medical workup. Because in probably about a third of cases of clinical depression, there's some underlying medical illness or, just to, to throw another little wrinkle in, some other substance that the person is using regularly that could be pushing the brain in that depressive state. So, for example, um, there's a subset of people, if they're abusing alcohol, it will have a, a central nervous system dep depressant effect. There's a subset of people, believe it or not, that marijuana can also make them clinically anxious and or depressed. There's a subset of people that uh, ironically are taking a, um, a class of drugs called benzodiazepines. That includes Xanax and Ativan, Klonopin. Those drugs, while they can reduce anxiety, they also tend to push the brain away from the most restorative phase of sleep. We call it slow wave or uh, delta wave sleep. And, you know, ironically, anti-anxiety drugs like those can sometimes actually cause clinical depression. So there are all kinds of things that we need to keep in mind that really only a trained professional is going to be able to, to make that catch. And sadly, uh, and it pains me to say this, sometimes the professionals miss these things, and, it, and they're pretty low-hanging fruit. Is there a concern that someone that's using physical activity to battle depression will become addicted to the activity? Yeah, I hope they do, <laughs> actually. But, but can it get I'm, to be like too much of a good thing can still be too much, you know, especially in the CrossFit space, you know, too much training can lead to overtraining, injuries, etc. How do we handle that? Yeah, that, yeah, I, I, I like where you're going with that. Um, yeah, so obviously, um, you know, overtraining is, is, is a concern for some. It, it ha I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, it hasn't been a huge high prevalence sort of thing that I've seen in my practice because, you know, most people just don't push themselves that hard. But in the CrossFit space, I could see it. I mean, you know, the, the biggest tell, at least th that I've learned to look for, and, and please tell me if it's different um, in your experience, but for me, the biggest tell is if somebody feels worse after a workout than they did when they started, if somebody feels physically sick after a workout, if somebody feels lower energy after their workout, that's probably a sign that they're overtraining. Um, there, there's also just some good empirical research that suggests that, you know, there's diminishing returns in terms of benefit to the brain with any workout lasting longer than about 45 minutes to an hour. So if somebody's, you know, pushing way beyond that, that's, you know, probably not helpful um, from the standpoint of their depression. Um, but just in general, yeah, I mean, if, if somebody is definitely suffering physically or otherwise as a result of their quote addiction to exercise, then, then we, we want to keep an eye on that and want to help them make a course correction. Yeah. I like to refer to that quote of, you know, 
no one has ever said they regret that workout or, you know, I regret that workout said no one ever. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. If, if you're done with your workout and you are regretting it or feel worse, you're probably overdoing it. And, and I've my entire life always kind of abided by that five minute rule, just get to the gym, give it five minutes. If you're not feeling better, you can go. And I don't think I've ever actually left after five minutes. And I think, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Well, I can tell you, um, you know, here at the University of Kansas, I end up teaching. I teach a lot of big classes. Um, my abnormal psych class right now, I've got 272 students. And one of the things that means is I, t- I teach a lot of our Division One athletes. So these are scholarship athletes across probably over two dozen different sports. And, um, you know, people think, oh, well, if you're a Division One athlete, then you're getting so much beneficial activity that surely you're more or less immune from depression. It turns out to be quite the opposite because a lot of times these elite level athletes are being pushed to overtrain and they're under a lot of competitive stress. And one of the things that will push somebody in the direction of depression is the brain's runaway stress response. And so if somebody is in an enormously stressful situation and they're overtraining and they're getting sleep deprived and they're ruminating about their competition, their performance, all that, um, it, it, it's like a perfect storm for pushing somebody into depression. So, you know, we athletes are, we're not immune. Um, we, you know, we have to be wise about what we're doing. Talk to me about this. Someone is listening to this podcast or they feel better due to exercise and they decide to completely just come off the medication. How do yeah, we handle, that, do we handle yeah, it, that? They, I, I would say that should only ever be done under medical supervision. One of the things we've learned about the medications is that, that they have very often a pretty difficult withdrawal syndrome. Now, I don't, I don't say that to discourage anyone. I, I've worked with literally hundreds of patients with clinical depression. I've worked with dozens of patients who started off in treatment while they were on a medication, got better, and tapered successfully off the med. But what I can tell you is if somebody just you know, decides on their own, as many of the folks that I've known over the years have done, they just decide on their own, yeah, I'm going to quit taking it, um, they can go through really rough turbulent withdrawal symptoms that can make them feel like they have the flu, that can make them feel really, really agitated, can make them um, feel, (coughs) excuse me, emotionally, (coughs) sorry, I'm getting choked up just talking about it, (coughs) feel emotionally volatile, and um, they really need to be under careful medical supervision and do what we would regard as a, a gradual or slow taper off the med. What percentage of the people that you've dealt with, you know, the hundreds of of clients that you've had fully come off of medication? Mm, I would say, well, in, in our, um, in our work with, with this TLC program, we've, I think we've run about 150 through the protocol so far and roughly half of them were on a med, roughly half were not. By the way, what that means is, I mean, think about it. Um, lots and lots and lots of folks were completely fully syndromally depressed while taking the med. That's a very common outcome. So if anybody's listening to this and they're like, well, what the hell's wrong with me? I'm on this antidepressant and I'm still depressed. That is common. It's not something that's advertised, but it, it is quite common. So anyway, 
Um, of those who came in on the medication, what I always tell them is, look, let's not make any change. Let's, you know, because we don't want to put you through withdrawal on top of everything else. Let's put these lifestyle changes in place. Get your brain uh, healthy. Get your body healthy. Get your mind healthy. And then we can see what we're dealing with. After you're in recovery, then we can talk to your prescriber and we can, can help you set up a slow, gradual taper um, I would say probably about half of those who've gone through that process have decided, yeah, I really want off this med and I want off as soon as I can. And then probably about half um, are just like, no, it's not broke. Why, why you know, why mess with it? Um, and, the, you know, they're just kind of resigned to like, I'll probably take this med for the rest of my life. So if someone's using fitness as a way of dealing with depression and then life gets in the way, you know, we all have work and family and, and life obligations what what should they do in those moments because they won't have that endorphin and dopamine spike that you'll get from exercise how can they handle and and manage depression when they're not working out as often mm -hmm. yeah well i mean i i think a lot's going to depend on exactly you know what's interfering so for example if it's just they've gotten really, really busy, then there are all kinds of little micro workouts that they can do. And probably this is something you and I have both discovered on our own, right? I mean, you can just like, okay, well, I'll just throw out a hundred burpees right now because I got 10 minutes to spare. And, you know, that's not bad, right? In other words, we can do something um, that's come to be known as high intensity interval training or HIT, where we can get like a really intense workout in a very short period of time. Now, if it's illness or injury, then that's not going to be an option. Um, and by the way, I'm just assuming that, you know, as long as we're not ill or injured, we always can carve out five or 10 minutes for a high intensity workout, right? To get some I benefit. tend to agree with you. I'm sure there's some listeners that, that don't, but you're right. You know, you, you only need a four by six area to do a hundred burpees. Exactly. And by the way, that 10 minutes that you're going to lose, um, you're going to more than make up for it in better productivity um, greater uh, concentration ability, mental acuity. I mean, it, it, it's like you're not going to lose anything. It, it, so if I had to choose between like, okay, well, this is going to cost me 10 minutes of sleep, 10 minutes of work, 10 minutes of I'm going to knock out 100 burpees. I mean, you know, the last thing you want to do is sacrifice the physical activity. Um, I'd rather sacrifice the 10 minutes of sleep any day. Um, but, you know, what if I'm injured? What if I, you know, ha have had the flu and I just can't work out for a while? I would say in that case, um, even there, a lot of times it, it's possible to just do something really light and easy. And I like to try to do it in nature. I think that many of us are, are sort of, if I can use this term, nature deprived, nature deficient. And even in an urban area, I mean, I was in New York City on vacation a few years ago and I was getting really antsy after a couple of days. And, I, you know, so I just went out to Central Park and it had just snowed and I'm just like traipsing around, you know, and finally running around Central Park. And it's like, this is freaking beautiful. It's, um, you know, right in the middle of the most urbanized spot, probably, you know, in the entire continent. Um, get out in nature, um, get out in sunlight if you can. It's going to be really beneficial and move, you know, as much as you can, even if it's just like a light stroll, it's still going to be beneficial to the brain, to the body, to the mind. Yeah, I think for me and, and for most of our listeners, we're kind of equating fitness and activity with CrossFit and high intensity, where, like you said at the beginning of this episode, we're just talking 
three 30 minute walks a week is all you need to really feel these positive changes. Well, yeah, the, the only asterisk I'd put on that is that these studies with brisk walking have been primarily with, with as most people who are clinically depressed, they're really sedentary. So it was enough to get them into the aerobic range. So to get their heart rate up to, you know, like 75% of their heart rate reserve, which would basically be, you know, let's just say pick an average 30 year old, like you're getting them up pulse rate over 150. Um, there's no way you or I are going to get our pulse up to 150 just by doing a brisk walk. Probably. Uh, I was, I was all uh, excited to no longer have to do these hard workouts, but okay. I hear what you, I get you. So, yeah. So, so for a sedentary middle-aged adult, brisk walking, like they're, you know, late for the bus or something, or, you know, running late for their flight at the airport, 30 minutes of that, that's plenty. But you know, what we're really talking about is 30 minutes in the aerobic zone. And if somebody doesn't have a heart rate monitor, they don't want to go to the trouble of doing all that. I mean, basically a good heuristic, a good proxy is like, you're breathing hard. You're probably perspiring a bit. You can carry on a conversation with some difficulty. You can't sing if you're in the aerobic zone, right? You can't, at least you can't sing like a continuous tune. Um, if you can, you need to step it up because it's not aerobic. Um, but yeah. I, I so, like that reference. I've never, I've never heard that before. We, we often say, hey, you should be able to carry a conversation, but that's another good kind of parameter. Hey, you should be able to talk, but not sing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the other thing about the conversation is, you know, it's, it's with, it's labored. So you, you're not even able to get out complete sentences. You're able to get out short phrases followed, you know, interspersed with breath because why? Cause you know, your oxygen needs are so great. You can't get out a full sentence like this. And if we you can, just... then it's not aerobic. Gotcha. We've, we've, you know, we've covered quite a bit when it comes to this depression, when it comes to the benefits of activity, is there anything we missed? I mean, I want people to check you out. You can, you can, I will link your Ted talk, which is pretty awesome that you've got a Ted talk. Depression is a disease of civilization and tons of other information when they Google you, but is there anything else that you can really tell the listeners that they should be aware of when it comes to depression and it comes to CrossFit and, and overall fitness? Yeah, I, I would just say that, um, you know, the, the, the treasure of CrossFit, aside from, you know, obviously getting people moving, getting them fit, is the connection. And, um, you know, as much as possible, I would encourage people when they're part of that community to um, use it as a springboard for deeper bonding, deeper connection with people um, getting together maybe outside of CrossFit. Um, it, it's been discovered, and, and I don't know why this was shocking to anybody, but it turns out that to actually make a deep friendship, the, the, the single rate limiting variable is the amount of time that we spend with a person. And it turns out that if we have just a few deep friends, emotionally uh, supportive confidants, when life hits us with something hard, you know, if we lose a loved one or, you know, we, we, we face a, a setback, we get fired, you know, whatever the thing is, life is going to throw something hard at all of us at some point. And we need to have that social capital. And I think CrossFit provides a good platform for that. But I think many people who are part of a CrossFit community still would benefit from going deeper, from, from spending. It takes about uh, one to 200 hours of time with somebody, 100 to 200 hours to make that person a deep friend. So I, I would encourage listeners to, to think about putting in that time. 
that's really awesome to hear. And I think like you've said a few times, it's, it's really encouraging to find that CrossFit is helping on so many levels. I think when most people join their, their local affiliate, it's, hey, I just simply want to look better naked. And then it turns out there's all of these other positive changes and impact that we get from this community. And, you know, spend those 100 to 200 hours. I mean, that's a year of training at the box. And in that year, you're going to look better naked. You're a number one goal, but you're also going to have some great friends and then hopefully have a better headspace to go along with all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's one of the most, I mean, as a clinician, CrossFit is one of the most positive, beneficial social movements that I've seen. And so I'm, I'm really happy with, with the work you're doing. Well, thank you, Dr. Steve. Let me give you the platform right here. If there's anything that we missed or anything you want the listeners to learn about you or, or what you're doing, please feel free to, to let them know right now. Sure. Well, I guess, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is if anybody's listening to this and they're like, hey, I really want to go deeper. Um, there's a loved one that I have that's battling depression, or I think maybe I am. I've got a book. It's called The Depression Cure, The Six-Step uh, Program to Beat Depression Without Drugs. And it's available anywhere books are sold. Um, you can find it easily online. If you want to watch a, a fairly detailed YouTube lecture that I gave a few years ago, it's like, I'll, I'll warn you now, it's like an hour and a half of pretty detailed content, but it's a lot of actionable stuff. Just look for me on YouTube, put my last name, Ilardi, I-L-A-R-D-I, in the search box, and you'll, you'll find a lot of hopefully useful content. I'm also about to launch a YouTube channel, um, and again, if you just search on my last name, you'll, you'll find some good content with that as well. Yeah, and, and we'll put all of those links in the podcast notes for those of you that are listening to this while you're out for your brisk walk or while you're driving your car. Don't go Googling and driving, but we'll put that all in there. And, and like, like Steve said, I Googled his name earlier, and the first thing that popped up was your TED Talk, and right below it is that YouTube video, and you're also featured in Calm, an app that I've used for meditation, and... Your book is available there as well. So we'll make sure to cover all of that. And we'd love to continue this talk with you in the future. It's really been awesome to hear. You know, nothing gets me more excited than to hear professionals and really smart people discuss the benefits of fitness and specifically the benefits of CrossFit. Hey, listen, Jason, it's been, been my pleasure. And I'd, I'd be more than happy to come back anytime. So let's stay in well, touch. You were right. I said, let's talk for 20. It's been nearly an hour. So you were absolutely right about that. Thank you so much for coming on. You really opened up my eyes and I hope you've really helped a lot of the listeners out there. Like Steve said, 30% of the people out there are dealing with depression. Just because you're not one of them doesn't mean you're not seeing them every day at the box and how you treat them at the box. You know, that just goes to being a good person, being nice, being being the kind of person you'd want your, your grandmother to be around at the box. And you, you never know who you're talking to. You never know what kind of day they've had. Treat them nicely, and you're probably doing a whole lot more good than you realize. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't put it any better myself. So th thank you for that. Well, thanks, Steve. It doesn't take a PhD to be, you know, to, to realize, hey, just be nice to people. But it, but it does take a PhD to to do all that research you've done and uh, we, we're going to benefit from it. So thanks again for being on best hour of their day. It, it's, it's been really 
truly my pleasure. And, and again, I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime. So thanks again, and uh, best wishes to you and, and all your listeners. Thanks again for listening to Best Hour of Their Day. Just a reminder, Fern and I have an amazing new show called Dropping In, premiering on our YouTube channel in early 2020. Be sure to head over to the Best Hour of Their Day YouTube channel now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of the episodes. You've probably heard us talking about it, summarizing some of our trip. You can see some highlights up on our Instagram as well, at best hour of their day. But I promise you, you're not going to want to miss out. So subscribe now. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks for letting us be a part of your lives. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Tune in tomorrow for another episode of Best Hour of Their Day.